through the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 10 through 13. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anybody else? We have plenty of brand new Bibles. Just raise your hand and Richard will get you get you some, get you covered. All right. Philippians chapter four, looking at verses ten through thirteen this morning. Apostle Paul's writing to the church and he says this in verse ten. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The title of my study this morning is The Secret to Contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be in your word. Father, we know that it's your desire to to touch our hearts, to speak to our hearts, and to change us and to draw us closer into our relationship with you, to teach us things we need to, to learn and to know, to apply them to our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd have attentive ears to all that you have for us this morning. We thank you for this time. We also pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to come to know you, uh, your Son as, as Lord and Savior, we pray, Father, that you would speak to their hearts especially and they would see their need for him and turn from their sin and turn towards you. We thank you for this time this morning. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you a content person? Are you content with what you have and, and where you are? Or do you think, oh, if only it just was a little bit smarter, or a little bit better looking, or a little bit more successful, then I'd be content. I read a story about a woman who was married to a banker. She was content for a while, but then she divorced her husband. Well, then she got married again. But this time, instead of a banker, she married a movie star. She loved the, that lifestyle, the glamour and the glitz. But that marriage soon, too, ended in divorce. And it got a little awkward Then she married her third husband, a preacher. She stayed with him for a while, but soon divorced that third husband, the preacher. Finally, last of all, she married a mortician. Very strange lineup. Well, one of her friends said to her, obviously you've been discontent, but I've just got to ask you why. Why did you marry those four men? She said, well, I married number one for the money, number two for the show, Number three, to get ready. And number four, to go. (laughs) Here we are at the last chapter of the book of Philippians. And we have a picture of a perfectly content man. He was the Apostle Paul. And in this chapter, he shares with us the secret of contentment. You know, advertisers, for a lot of years, they, you know, they want us to be discontent. You know that. They live and they breathe and they have their very being making you a discontented person. And I gotta tell you, it's working. You know, if you look at America, Americans is by far, by far the most discontented people on the planet. 
We've got to have the next new thing. What's new? That This wasn't the case for Paul. In fact, he says in verse 11, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. So he can be in Missouri or California or New York. Or, okay, that's not what he means. It's a state of mind. I've learned in whatever state of mind I'm in, I can be content. Actually, that word learned is a term that was generally used by the pagans at that time to speak of some special attainment or having been initiated into some hidden truth. Paul is using this word, though, taking it from them by saying, check this out, I've been initiated. I have found the hidden truth. I have found the secret of contentment. Now, it's worth noting that Paul was facing some very difficult circumstances personally. We know that he was a Roman prisoner. We know his trial was coming up shortly. He might be acquitted, or maybe he could be put to death. We don't know. He really didn't know. He was also a a prisoner in his own house, and he was chained to Roman guards, so he was unable, unable to go out and preach the gospel, for which Paul, you know, for Paul, that was a fate worse than death. I mean, he just loved to preach. So here he is sitting in prison, Difficult circumstances, yet over and over and over again in this great epistle, he's sounding very content, very joyful, very much at peace. I mean, look at some of the languages he uses just in these verses that we're looking at this morning. I rejoice, says Paul. I have learned to be content, he says. I can do all things. Just describing this contentment and this joy and this peace rather than this restlessness. I think if Paul were here today, he would tell each one of us that we too can experience the same contentment, the same joy and peace, and it doesn't depend on what you have or what you don't have. Whether you're newly married or newly divorced, whether you're a billionaire or you make minimum wage, whether you have seven children or you're unable to conceive, Paul would say contentment is available to all of us. And this is important. Why? Because life never stays the same, does it? Things change, you know, uh, you know, we get older, our health change, uh, people that, that are around us and our lives will change. They may die, they may go on for years, our income may not always be the same. So that makes these truths very important to us this morning. Paul is saying we should and, have, and can have contentment and joy, and they really go hand in hand together. If you're content, you're going to have joy, and if you have joy, you're going to be content as well. Now, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you three must-haves for you to apply if you want this contentment and this joy that Paul is talking about to be a part of your life. Number one, we must have a connection to God's people. Number two, we must have a trust in God's provision. And number three, we must have a confidence in God's power. Number one, a connection to God's people. Look at verse 10 again. Paul says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now, uh, the Philippians had previously helped Paul in his ministry. Paul was at one time preaching in Macedonia, and while he was there, the church in Philippi sent him some financial aid. In fact, if you look ahead at verse 15 and 16 here, Paul writes, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only... For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. But that was then. Several years have passed in between that time and now. And he had no connection whatsoever with them until finally, if you remember, back in chapter 2, that the church of Philippi sent with uh, Epaphroditus a monetary gift. And we read there that it greatly encouraged Paul. It reconnected him with them. 
Paul has now this connection with God's people. And that's the first step towards contentment and towards joy, a connection with God's people. I mean, if you look at this verse very closely, you see that the connection brings joy. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So whenever you connect with God's people in an atmosphere of love and acceptance, the result is joy. Let me ask you, do you have someone that you can connect with consistently on? Is there someone in your life that, that, that can bring you that joy because they are always there for you? Now, two in the morning, you can't sleep, you're struggling with something, you're, you're troubled. Do you have someone to call to connect with? Now, of course, Proverbs 18.24 says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. I thought about this. You know, in my house, we have wireless Internet. And I have my laptop and I study on. And a lot of times, you know, I'll go to get on the net and all of a sudden it'll say, you know, uh, um, you know, no connection to the server. And the little thing spins around half a dozen times and just frustrated over that. Then it'll say, move closer to your modem. And it can be frustrating. Why? Because I can't get a connection. I want to get a connection and I can't. Now, the best fix is just to get wired in. I think the same thing is true for us. You know, there's these spiritual drifters never really connecting with anybody. And rather they hop from one church to the next church and never really calling any church home. So then, so then when there's a crisis that hits, there's no one there that you consistently have met with and have accountability with and can connect to that can help bring you this joy. There's a lot of churches out there. And they have memberships, you know, and, and, and it's kind of funny. They say, well, we have 6,000 members of our church. And then you go to the church and there, there may be like 300 people that go to the church. But to be a member, you know, all you got to do is, is put your name on something and send in a check once a year. That's membership. That's being a believer, but not a belonger. They're a spiritual drifter. I read a story about three pastors that got together for coffee one day and, and found that all their churches had a bat infestation problem. I got so mad, said one, I took a shotgun and fired at them and made holes in the ceilings but did nothing to the bats. I tried trapping them alive, said the second. Then I drove 50 miles before releasing them, but they beat me back to the church. Well, the third pastor said, I haven't had any more problems with them. Wow, they said. What did you do? He said, I simply baptized them and made them members of the church, and I haven't seen them since. There's no joy in that. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because he had that connectedness with the church. That connectedness brought him joy. Something else we notice about being connected is that that you need to show it. In other words, if you're connected with people, show it. Go out of your way. Notice Paul says here in verse 10, your care for me has flourished again. That word flourished means to revive to sprout or to blossom. I picture the dogwood trees here in, you know, in the spring when they start to blossom, you know, just covered with these beautiful white flowers. During the winter, nothing. Pretty ugly, pretty bare. But as soon as spring hits, like, poof, I mean, it's there, you know. And it'll do it again. The following year, go bare than these beautiful flowers. That's the idea that Paul is, is saying to the Philippians. They had cared for Paul at one time. They had this relationship with him, but now it was dormant. When Paul heard nothing from them, then suddenly they show up again and it sprouts again and he's encouraged by, by them and the support for him. I mean, this is wonderful for Paul, especially remembering where he was at again at this point in his life. He was in a Roman prison, maybe even wondering to himself, am I sure this is the will of God for my life right now? 
And then suddenly Epaphroditus shows up, not only with a check, so to speak, but with the encouragement from the church. And that brought Paul so much joy. But it also validated his ministry because it was demonstrated that they cared for him. Not only that, look a little closer at the end of verse 10. Paul says that their encouragement was just at the right time. He said, you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. That phrase, lacked opportunity, it's actually one single word in the Greek. It simply means a good season. It's not that, that Paul, or it's not that you don't care, Paul says. He's saying that it just wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right season for you to give, but now it was. In other words, Paul's saying you gave it just the right time, to just the right season when I just needed it the most. And I'm always amazed, and maybe this happens in your life, how God knows exactly what we need just when we need it. His timing is perfect. His provision is constant. There's been those times in the past that though they don't know it or recognize it, their gift their special offering to the church was given right at the right time, right when we needed it the most. Last year, this time, our air conditioning went out, but we needed a new roof on, on, on the building, and, and, uh, and I don't think the need was even presented to the church. Suddenly, the money came in and covered both things even above what we needed. But what an encouragement that is to see something that was dormant suddenly blossom. But notice something else here. When it comes to raising money for ministry or for good causes, Paul did not use high-pressure techniques. He didn't sponsor a begathon, you know, asking for money, asking people to give. He, he obviously didn't go there. Paul didn't say, well, if you don't give to my ministry right now, then here in Rome it's going to have to fold and close down. You don't want to do that, so dig a little deeper. Give, 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 give. He doesn't do that. Paul says, man, it's not that you didn't care, just that you didn't have the opportunity, but now you did. That's great. Praise the Lord. doesn't even ask for it. It's just, they gave it to him. See, the Bible loves a cheerful giver, the Bible says. Not a pressured giver, not a, a guilty giver, but a cheerful giver. Paul talks about that principle, that principle in his letter to the Corinthians. The Philippians gave not because they had a guilt complex. They gave because they cared. They gave because they loved Paul. And they showed that they cared, and it was this connection to God's people in Philippi that brought this joy to Paul. That brings us to our second point, and the reason Paul could be content and experience this joy is, number two, a must-have for us. If we want to be content, we must have a trust in God's provision. Look at verse 11 and 12. Paul writes, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul here again says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He learned it. Now, Paul was a very smart man. I'm sure he spent hours in the books, in the scrolls, studying and learning. But contentment, you can't learn in books. Something that the Lord teaches us. But here's my point. We can all learn to be content. Paul learned, we can learn. Now, I can't say that I've learned it completely, like Paul says, to be content. I can say I'm still learning. And I think probably we can all, if we're honest, we say most of us are still learning. Think about this. Paul is a gray-headed old man by now, you know, shut up as a prisoner on the verge of his grave. And then he says, I have learned to be content. All that to say is, is contentment is not a genetic thing. It's, it's not a personality trait. It's something that, that has to be learned. You know, just like we learn to be discontent, have we not? I mean, we, we were learning to be discontent from a very young age as we started watching TV. 
And those little toys come on, those little gizmos and games come on the TV. Oh, I gotta have that. Mom, can I have this toy? You know, and we, oh, I gotta have this. Oh, mom, please give it to me. Because we're discontent. And then the ads just get older with us as we start growing. Oh man, look at that car. I got, I gotta have, I gotta have, oh, look at that. And we've produced a generation of discontent human beings. But listen, we can be reprogrammed. We can learn to be content. It's interesting, the Greek word for content is the word outer case, and it was the word the Stoic Greek philosophers used in meaning a self-sufficient containment. In other words, the Greek philosophers used it as something they were aiming for in life. Their, their goal was to be self-sufficient isolationists. The idea is that I don't need anyone or anybody else or anything else, which is opposite to the contentment that we've already, we're looking at and already looked at. Paul is using it to say, I'm content, Because I trust that God is in control of my life. I'm not relying upon man. I trust that God is providing for my life. See, contentment is not something that we see in the world too often anymore. And the reason being is so many have swallowed the mindset that says more. More matters. I want more. You know, if one word could describe America's hopes and obsessions, it's that one word more. More money, more success, more food, more gizmos, more gadgets. We live for more. The next raise, the next house, the next car, next vacation. And the things that we already have, as nice as they are, man, they pale in comparison to the next new thing that we want. But in the heart of each of us as believers, we should be so content in Christ that whatever the world has to offer, we're not interested. We're not interested. Why? Because we're trusting in God's provision. I think a good illustration of this is thinking about going to your favorite restaurant. And you just order your favorite meal, and, and now you've just eaten it. And, and whatever your favorite one is, Zio's or, or Olive Garden or Who Hot, you know, whatever. I like Who Hot because um, they say Who Hot when you go in there. But anyway, so you finish, you finish your favorite meal, and now comes to the dessert tray, you know. And as she brings it out, there's like four or five different things that look so good that you just can't decide. So you get one of each. And you eat them until they're all gone. Now you're sitting at the table Fools can be going, oh, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Waiter, get this leftover bread out of my face. I can't stand to look at another bite. Now, someone sees you, a friend of yours sees you in the restaurant. And, and he calls the waiter over and says, hey, that's my friend over there. Could you do me a favor? Could you give him a dessert? I want to pay for a dessert for him. So the waiter goes back, gets the dessert, and brings it over to your table. Hey, this is for you. It's free. Get it out of here. I don't care where it came from. I am so full. I am so satisfied. I don't want it. Don't leave that thing here. You're refusing it. But you don't want to even see it. That's the type of contentment that we're talking about here. You're so content because you've been so full of God's grace and God's provision and God's love in your life that, man, nothing else is important. It's the same way that the Lord, the, the, the world you know, drops its lure before your face. Come on, Christian, take this. No, I'm full. No, you need to have this, don't you? No, I'm satisfied. You know, car salesmen, I think they hate when Christians come, you know, or, or they're looking at cars because they can't get you. They can't get you. No, oh, come on. Don't you want this car? I mean, you need this car in your life. If you only had this car, you would be popular. I don't need to be popular. No, you just need to sit in the driver's seat just for a moment. Fill the leather. You need this car. Nice leather, but I, I don't need the car, Okay. What do you mean you don't need the car? Everybody needs the car. Everybody needs a $600 a month payment. How come you don't? Well, it's because I'm different. Yeah, you're different, the salesman may say, but but I'm not done. 
Listen to this sound system. Boom, 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 boom. Man, what do you think? Man, don't you want that now? Not really not interested. Oh, you're one of them Bible thumpers, aren't you? You're one of those guys that are just content all the time. Man, it's hard selling to you guys. Why? Because you're content. You're trusting in God's provision. It's equivalent to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Let me say this. A discontented sheep is a disgrace to the shepherd. It's saying in effect to the shepherd that you're not doing a very good job in taking care of me. The thought of my life that you've given me is not what I expected. That's a disgrace to the shepherd. Listen, contentment doesn't come from what we have, but from whom we have. Let me say that differently, put it another way. Contentment is not based on what you have, it's based on who you know. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Let us conduct, or let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now we often quote the last part of that verse, I will never leave you or forsake you. But look at the first part of that. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Covetousness means a strong desire to get something you don't have. He's saying, don't live this way. God is saying, be content with the things that you do have. For he himself said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now what does that mean? When God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That means he'll never leave you or forsake you. Your contentment comes from who you know. He's going to be with you no matter what. That's where you draw your contentment from. In fact, that last part of the verse, Hebrews 13.5, can be translated, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. So if I know that the Lord is going to be with me no matter what I face in life, or how many times I face it, I can be content because I know He'll never leave me or forsake me. Or again, as David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, if you're always wanting, always discontent, then maybe the Lord is not your shepherd yet. Because if he really is your shepherd, then you're going to find satisfaction and fulfillment in him. Again, look at verse 11 and 12. Paul says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I read a story about a rich industrialist who was disturbed to find one of his fishermen sitting lazily beside his boat. Why aren't you fishing, he asked. Well, because I caught enough fish for today, said the fisherman. Well, why don't you catch more fish than what you need, the rich man asked. Well, what would I do with them? Well, the rich industrialist said you could earn more money and buy a bigger boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets, catch even more fish, make even more money. Soon you'll have a fleet of boats and be rich just like me. The fisherman asked, well, then what would I do? Well, then you could sit down and enjoy life, said the industrialist. What do you think I'm doing right now? The fisherman replied. See, Paul the apostle, he lived on both sides of that fence. Paul lived in abundance at one time. He was the son of a rabbi. Their family could afford a private education in Jerusalem under the esteemed rabbi and teacher Gamaliel. He had status in his culture. He was known everywhere. But then he switched sides of the fence. He went from abounding to abasing. Jail after jail, prison after prison, after being beaten and stoned, having it all of them, losing everything. Now he's in jail writing this. And he says these things. 
You know, I, I think it would have been a lot easier for Paul to say this if he was being released from prison and someone gave him a million dollars. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound and I am loving the abounding. You know, this is great. Yeah, because you're rich. But Paul said this while he was abased. Abased means to be humbled, brought low, even depressed. And a lot of people, they get depressed, especially, you know, over things that, that, that they lose. You know, back in 1929, I think of the stock market crash. Executives jumping to their death out of their office windows, so depressed they couldn't handle it. Why? Because their trust was in their money, their trust was in their stuff, their portfolio. Paul says, even when I was brought low, humbled, and depressed, I was still content. Because I trust in the Lord and His provision. Keep your place in Philippians. Turn with me over a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul has something to say to Timothy when it comes to contentment and trusting in your own provision versus God's provision. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning in verse 6. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says there, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For he brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these things, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Four principles in these four verses. Quickly, I'll go over them. Number one, contentment is related to godliness. Contentment is related to godliness. He says godliness... Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not an outside thing. It's an inside thing. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. I believe our contentment is directly linked to how much we seek the Lord in his kingdom or not. So contentment is related to godliness. Number two, contentment is rooted in eternity. Verse 7, Paul said, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I read that and I think about the ancient Egyptians and all their pharaohs and stuff and they would bury them with all these these artifacts and all these these very expensive artifacts, you know, and, and worth millions and millions of dollars. And, and guess what? They're still there. Artifacts are still there. And we find them, you know, but, but, but it's true. You know, it's still, you can't take it with you. Or as the saying goes, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You may be buried with all your stuff, but that's where it's going to stay unless grave robbers come in. You know, it's sure it's not going to go with you. Number three, contentment rejoices in essentials. Paul says there, and having food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. Notice it doesn't say having food and clothing and a house and a car and my cell phone. Uh, the basic food and clothing. He says we can be content. I think most of us here, we're not independently wealthy. I think we're dependently in debt, probably, most of us. You know, I know they say money talks, but the only thing it's ever said to me was bye-bye. You know, but maybe you've experienced that. I like what Proverbs 23.5 says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches, riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle towards heaven. <laughs> I can relate to that. Well, there they go. But contentment doesn't come with what you have. Again, it's who you know. Jehovah Jireh, that means God, our provider. Number four, contentment is ruined by covetousness. 
Contentment will be ruined when you have a strong desire to have what you don't have. Look at verse 9 again in First Timothy. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Notice here, Paul is not addressing the rich. He's addressing those that want to be rich. There's a big difference. Some of the most miserable people I know, they don't have anything, all they, but they want everything. That's the idea that Paul is referring to here. He's saying, if you set your, eye, your aim at riches, those that desire to be rich, when that's the most important thing in your life, you're going to have problems. It's going to lead towards destruction. That strong aim and desire will rob you of contentment. It's going to rob you of your joy. It's one of the joy robbers we talked about a few studies back. Paul calls it a snare. So, contentment is related to godliness. It's rooted in eternity. It rejoices in essentials. And it's ruined by covetousness. Now, turn back with me to Philippians 4. Here's our third must-have in order to be content and in order to have joy. We must have, number three, a confidence in God's power. Look at verse 13 of Philippians 4. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, this is one of the great verses of the New Testament. A lot of people have this one memorized. A lot of athletes, you know, they'll, they'll mark this verse on their hats or their helmets or they'll get the tattoo with Philippians 4.13 on it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here, here is a must-have. We can have a contentment for today when we trust in God's power for our tomorrows. I mean, let me read you this, this amazing verse to you in a couple of other translations that when you hear it, you go, wow, I get it. Here's the J.B. Phillips translation. He says, I am ready for anything through the strength from the one who lives within me. I like that. Here's the Amplified Bible. I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I'm ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. I'm self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I mean, this is Paul's declaration of dependence. We just celebrated our declaration of independence. This is Paul's declaration of dependence. I can do all things, not because I'm wise, not because I'm educated, not because they have money. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's kind of the back way of looking at what Jesus said in John 15, 5, when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me ask you this. Have you met many no people? What I mean by that is the people that always say, no, can't be done. You don't have enough money. Can't happen. Don't have enough time. No resources. No people involved. No, no, no. They're the no people. On the other hand, there's the yes people, man, who say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, it all depends on where our resources are coming from. You're right. I can't do anything. Now, let's let God in on this and see what God can do. What can God do? Anything he wants to do. He's God. He has the resource. He has the power. Therefore, with power like that, it brings contentment. I love what Mother Teresa used to say. She said, you'll never know that Jesus Christ is all that you need. Until Jesus Christ is all that you have. Is Jesus Christ an important part of your life? Or is Jesus Christ the center of your life? Paul's contentment came from his close and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Which allowed him to be lifted above his circumstances. Giving him the strength to deal with whatever came his way. Remember Paul said in chapter 1 verse 21. For to me to live is Christ to die is gain. 
And here he says, I'm ready for anything through the strength from the one who lives within me. What, what a great balance. It shows our part and it shows God's part. Doesn't mean that I don't do nothing and God does everything. God will give me the strength to be the man or the woman that God is calling me to be, but I must appropriate that. I must apply that. I must utilize that. Because clearly there are some things that only God can do and some things that only I can do. Only God can enable, but only I can yield. Only God can guide, but only I can follow. Only God can convict me of my sin, but only I can repent of it. See, God's not going to step over that boundary of my frill and make me do what He wants me to do. If He did, there would be nothing more than, than robots. But because He wants me to act out of my own free will, He initiates. But I must respond to what He is doing. With that said, if He's laying on your heart that you've been discontent for a long time, then He's asking you to respond. And only you can respond. You know, you want to learn to be content? You can. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they give you the power to do so. So if you want joy and contentment in your life, you must have, number one, a connection to God's people. Number two, a trust in God's provision. And number three, a confidence in God's power. Let me add one more thing as we close. And this is important. Contentment does not mean being complacent. Let me say that again. Contentment is not being, being complacent. There's a great danger and becoming complacent in our fellowship with Christ. To become complacent would be to become lukewarm. And Jesus warned against that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. He says, because you're lukewarm, neither hard nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Contentment does not mean complacency. You know, it wasn't that long ago, if you recall, that Paul was urging us to run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author, and the finisher of our faith. But Paul was urging us not to just run the race, but to, to run with the intent to win, to reach that goal. And here's my point. It's not enough to be so content in doing what you're doing that you're no longer striving to do more and better at what you're already doing. We need to have vision. We need to have a goal. And we need to be seeking ways to bring more glory to God with our lives each and every day. Let me tell you this, folks. We're living in a time like no other. I truly believe the Lord is coming back very, very soon. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24. He says, because lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. He said this would happen in the last days. We're seeing it played out in the streets of Dallas today. This last Friday night. Listen, it should break our hearts for our nation to see where it's at today. We certainly need to be praying for the families of these brave officers that lost their lives this Friday in Dallas. Those poor families. It grieves my heart to think of what they're going through. We need to pray for these families. Let me read their names. Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Lauren Aarons. They had family. Family. Moms, dads, you know, wives, kids. We need to pray, Lord, comfort these families of these men. Give them strength during this time of difficulty. We need to be praying like never before for our law officers, really for our country, for our leaders, for the men and the women that seek to keep our, our country safe in the military. But here's my point on all of this. Has our contentment turned to complacency when it comes to our prayer life? Has our contentment to our hearts turned to complacency when it comes to reaching the lost? Are we content where we're at or should it be more? 
I know I am convicted. Because again, it's not enough to simply continue on doing what we're doing. We should be striving to not only do more, but to be better at what we're already doing. See, real contentment is not being satisfied with what you have or where you're at in life spiritually. It's working diligently to glorify God. Great example of this. Last example I'll give you is a scripture about a man who was content with what he had, though he should not have been. It's found in the parable of this uh, of the talents in Matthew 25. You don't need to turn there. But it's a story that Jesus tells about a man who was going away on a, on a journey. And he gave talents to three different men. It says there in verse 6 of Matthew 25, And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. There's no instructions given with what the servants are to do with the money the master had given to them. When the master had come back, the one with five talents, man, he came back with another five talents, man. So he doubled his, his talents. The one with the two came back with another two. But the one with one talent was content with just the one that he had been given. But really should have been. He saw no reason to put that resource to work despite the intent of his master. And when the master returned, he rebuked that servant with, with the one talent. Listen, we don't want to end up like the servant who was content with just the one talent. We need to be persistent and faithful even in the small things. We need to live in the light of eternity and make our decisions differently because we see life from a different perspective. So tomorrow, instead of just going to the office and putting in your time, start work by looking every day as a new opportunity to glorify God in some unique way. And God will give you the opportunity and He will give you the strength to do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Finally, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ. I can assure you this morning that your life has been that of, of not contentment, of discontentment. Because we can only find contentment in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So all, all our lives, they start out empty apart from God. All of us have been born in sin. And the longer we stay in sin, and the longer we don't turn towards God, the more we try to fill that emptiness with things. More money, more relationships, sports, things, possessions. But I'll tell you this, you're going to come up empty. It's only when you surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ can you know the love and the joy and the contentment that comes from having your sin forgiving, of of being born again. Listen, God was not content to let us stay in our sin. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I pray that you don't leave here without making that commitment to know Him as your Lord and as your Savior. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the lessons that we learn here, Lord, on how You teach us to be content. And we're learning it, Lord. And we pray, Father, that we'll learn it more and more. We thank You, Lord, for the joy that we can have, Lord, as we gather together as a church and we can be there for one another. Be connected. We thank you, Lord, for your provision in our lives, Lord. Lord, that you give us everything we need for life, for godliness. We don't need what the world has to offer. And finally, Father, we thank you for our salvation. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that does not have salvation, they've never come to you and asked them to forgive them of their sin. In fact, they're still living in that sin, Lord. But they're here this morning. And they want to turn from it. They want to turn towards you, God. I pray if they're here and this is what they want, you'd give them the faith and you'd give them the strength to make that decision this morning. Or our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ today?
You want to be born again. You want your sin forgiven. You want to find that contentment and that peace and that joy that I've been talking about. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord making the commitment to follow Jesus Christ and to gain that peace and love in your heart. You want that, just raise your hand. I can pray for you. Again, Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for the love that you give us. Bless our week, Lord, as we go our way. Give us those opportunities, we pray. In your name, amen. So I'll stand with the one.